What is up, Thrive Tribe? Welcome back to the Thrive University podcast. I am your host and chief energy officer, Jeremy Abramson. And ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, am I excited for you to listen to today's conversation with Cynthia Thurlow. Now, Cynthia is such a powerful leader in the wellness space, and I'm beyond grateful for having her in my life and for her sharing vulnerably in today's episode. So please, please, please make sure to not only listen to today's show, but implement what we talk about. Just one thing into your life. Because here at Thrive University, we don't believe that knowledge is power. We believe that knowledge is potential power. You need to put these practices into practice. The implementation and execution is everything, fam. Okay? And we want you to succeed. We want you to grow. We want you to unleash your fullest potential, but it's going to to require you to take action. So, Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you. And we have revamped our YouTube channel. So make sure to check out Thrive University to watch all of these conversations on YouTube. And you'll see the quality of production that we are putting out. As always, hit me up on social media at Coach Jeremy 305 on Instagram. Let me know what the biggest takeaway was for you during this show and I'll be sure to engage and reply back and continue the conversation. And lastly, before we get started, if you are on Clubhouse, I am there and I'm hosting different rooms, conversations on microdosing, conversations on consciousness, conversations on nutrition and everything health and wellness. So if you're out there, make sure to shoot me a follow at Coach Jeremy. And I promise, promise, promise we're going to be having some really fun conversations. My dad is even getting involved. So you know it's going to be good. Anyways, fam, let's get to today's show. What is up, Thrive Tribe? We are back for another fire episode of the Thrive University podcast, I am your host and chief energy officer, Jeremy Abramson. And today we have a very, very special treat for you. I have Cynthia Thurlow in the building. And Cynthia is a globally recognized expert in nutrition and intermittent fasting, highly sought after speaker, CEO, and founder of Everyday Wellness Podcast. She's been a nurse practitioner for 20 plus years. A two, she's a two time TEDx speaker. And her second talk on intermittent fasting has been viewed over 7.5 million times. That's a lot of times. That's a lot of people. She has been featured on ABC, Fox, KTLA, CW, and in Medium and Entrepreneur. Cynthia was recently listed in Yahoo Finance as one of the 21 founders changing the way we do business. She's also the host of the Everyday Wellness Podcast, which I've been a guest on, uh, which was also listed as 20 podcasts that will help you grow in 2020 and by Entrepreneur by Entrepreneur Magazine, and in Business Insiders, 21 podcasts to expand your mind in 2021. That is a lot of amazing things you have going on. Welcome, Cynthia. Thank you, Jeremy. I've been looking forward to our conversation. 
Yeah, me too. And um, that's an impressive bio you have. You know, um, it, it kind of makes me, uh, you know, blush when it gets read because I'm like, wow, you know, that's, it's been quite the journey for which I'm very grateful. Yeah. And I think it's so important that we celebrate some of those successes, right? Because I've heard you say it multiple times that you're more of a type A personality. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've found with myself being type A and coaching a lot of type A personalities is that we rarely celebrate and acknowledge ourselves. Have you found that to be the case with yourself? Absolutely. And I think I'm also, uh, you know, I'm, I would say that I'm an introvert. And so uh, there's, there's a degree of humility, you know, I'm very humble uh, and I'm not someone that likes to be in the spotlight, which may surprise people. And I think because, you know, 2019 was such a pivotal year for me on a physical, emotional, psychological level. And then we rolled into a pandemic I feel like it's it's kind of been an interesting last few years. And so I try to let things sink in. I, I acknowledge that uh, some of these leaps of faith that I've taken have opened up doors that I that are beyond what I could have ever envisioned or imagined for myself. But I agree with you that sometimes we're so focused on looking forward that we don't necessarily absorb what's going on right in the here and now. Yeah, I love that. So take us back to 2019. This is when... <laughs> your second TEDx talk took place Mm -hmm. and blew up the internet. Um, And I'd love if you could talk a little bit about your mindset going into that talk after having given a talk previously to Mm -hmm. that, right? What was your mindset? What did you learn from that first TEDx talk that maybe didn't go as well as you had planned? And I know you also were facing some health hiccups shortly before that second TEDx talk. So I'd love if you could take us kind of behind the scenes of that whole experience. Well, certainly my first TEDx talk, I think my greatest concern, if you can imagine, was can I pull off memorizing 15 to 20 minutes of a, of a speech, you know, that, that to me seemed woefully overwhelming. I'm not a memorizer by nature. I generally have to really learn things. So I think that was my, my primary concern was, can I do this? And, you know, I flew up to Toronto and pulled off that, pulled it off successfully. And in my mind, when I sat in the audience, because I had to endure watching everyone else go first. And then I went towards the very end and I kept saying, I want to be the best speaker at this event. Like that was my goal. I'm going to get up there. I know I can do this and I need to pull this off. And I got up there and the energy in the room was so nurturing and supportive. And I had some family there and it was incredible. I mean, I got off the stage and I mean, of course, I, I when I watch myself, which I try not to do because that just embarrasses me. But if I were to watch myself, I can tell that I'm nervous. But I think someone watching it may not necessarily know, except for the fact that I... I I tend to be someone who's very in movement. You know, when I'm nervous, I have to kind of work out the nervous energy. So generally people will, they're going to be critical. They're usually, they're like, will you tell her to stop moving? But, you know, I kind of move back and forth. And so after that experience, I felt completely confident that I could pull off another TEDx talk. And at that point, I knew that I was in the running for a second one because they had reached out. I had done a couple interviews uh, with individuals for TEDx Greenville and uh, I felt very strongly because I grew up, I, I was actually born in South Carolina while my father was finishing his doctoral program. 
that South Carolina is like a second home. I have a lot of wonderful memories there. And I, I kept saying, you know, my grandmother, she's going to make this happen. I'm going to do this other TEDx in Greenville. And so on the 24th of December, I was told that I was selected. I was one of, I think, 11 selected. They had had five rounds of cuts. And it was very different. TEDx Toronto was much smaller. And so fast forward to the TEDx. The second TEDx was supposed to be in March. And in February, for the very first time, I went with my husband on a business trip. Never had been able to do that. And so my mom was with my boys and we flew out to Hawaii. And, and I was in Hawaii and he was working. And I was literally writing the beginning of this TED Talk and had all these dates that I had to provide information for the TEDx Greenville team and uh, got back from Hawaii. And within 48 hours, I thought I had food poisoning. And I woke up in the middle of the night, I was vomiting. I just felt terribly nauseous. And I was like, this is my luck. You know, I've got food poisoning after coming back from such a beautiful part of the country. And long story short, the following morning, I woke up and I was like, you know, I really don't feel good. I'm not sure I've ever felt this bad in my entire life. And so uh, by mid-afternoon, I told my husband I needed to go to the ER I got to the ER and because uh, you know I'm an otherwise very healthy person, I wasn't running a fever. My blood pressure, which is normally very low, was normal. My pulse wasn't too high. They kind of let me sit. You know, they kind of, you know, she comes in with abdominal pain and they did some blood work and I think they gave me some antacids, which didn't help by the way. And I had this impending sense of doom. And this is something that I learned from taking care of patients over the years. I was an ER nurse before I was an NP. And when a patient tells you, I feel like I'm going to die, you believe them. And so I remember saying to my husband, if they don't figure out what's wrong with me, I'm going to die. Like there was no question in my mind. And so they did blood work. And then all of a sudden, there were like all these different providers moving around. They're like, uh, you're really sick. And I was like, no kidding. <laughs> and so they sent me off for an emergency CAT scan, which revealed that my appendix had ruptured. The entire length of my colon was inflamed, which explained why I was in so much pain. The surgeon came in and the first thing she said to me was, if I take you to surgery tonight, you'll lose your colon. And I was like, time out. I need my colon. She was like, no, no, no. You'll be fine without your colon. I was like, no, no. I need my colon. <laughs> I do not want you to take my colon. We need to do everything we can not to lose my colon. And so... Uh, they were like, we will try our best. And so they admitted me to the hospital. My husband went home to be with my boys. And I spent 13 days in the hospital. And over 13 days, the first five, I vomited constantly. And so that destroyed the enamel on my teeth, which that isn't in and of itself a big deal because that we can work around that. But on day five, I was so despondent. And I've never in my life experienced that degree of depression. Like I think part of why I was depressed is because I had not eaten in almost a week. Uh, and they were giving me lots of fluids, but I was vomiting. I just felt really ill and I wasn't getting better. And so my surgeon, who was a wonderful female surgeon, would come in every night to check on me. And she was like, Cynthia, I don't know why you're not getting better. Like, we don't understand. Like, I had multiple specialists. I had infectious disease. I had, you know, a hospitalist. I had this whole team of people taking care of me. And they're like, we don't understand why you're not getting better. So they actually went into do a second CAT scan. And um, they were like, we need to get you eating. Like we're going to put a special IV in so that we can give you um, nutrition through an IV because you've lost 15 pounds in five days. Honest to God, I didn't, I didn't fully appreciate what that experience was like. So when they did the second CAT scan, they realized I had developed abscesses in my 
abdomen. I had a small bowel obstruction on top of everything else. It was like my entire digestive system was just doing like a big timeout. And so they had to call in a special type of interventional radiologist to put drains into these abscesses that were in my peritoneum, which is your abdominal cavity. And then I developed a fistula. I cannot make this up. It was like every complication you could imagine having, but I was septic. I was very sick and I almost died. And so uh, I do recall over probably over the weekend of the first weekend I was in the hospital that I felt this presence. Now, whether or not you believe in the Holy Spirit, the universe, any spiritual kind of connections, it was very evident that I was being given a choice. You know, if you're going to choose to live, then this is your trial. And if you want things to go a different direction, that can happen too. And I thought about my children and my husband and I was like, I'm going to live and I'm not going to live small. Like, not that I think I had been super conservative up until that point, but um, the following day I started to turn a corner. And so, you know, for me, 13 days in the hospital, went home with IV lines and um, intravenous antifungals and antibiotics. And I was too sick to even do surgery on me. So I went home and uh, if you can imagine that TEDx people had not given up on me, even though I'd missed every deadline (laughs) for my talk. And uh, I'd been home about three days and I had reached out to them and said, I really want to do this talk. Part of my vision in the hospital was I wanted to get home to my family and I wanted to do this talk. I felt like it was so important that people really needed to hear what I was going to say about intermittent fasting, honest to God. And so they did a video call and they said, are you sure? I mean, there's no one that would ever question you not doing this talk. Like we are completely supportive of whatever you want to have happen. And um, 27 days after I left the hospital, I did that talk. Flew down, to Cal- flew down to South Carolina with my youngest, did the talk, enjoyed the whole experience. I can't believe, like when I look at the photos or I look at the video, I can't believe I was able to pull that off. I think it was because my brain had not caught up with my body. Like my body was still healing, but my brain was like, no, no, no. We want to make sure that we still work. And so 10 days after that TEDx talk, I had my appendix out. Oh my goodness. That is <laughs> such a crazy story. I literally have goosebumps. I'm yeah. curious to know, first question, um, more interested uh, mm-hmm. as a fellow speaker, how much before the talk did you start really like preparing and outlining? Um, yeah, it's a good question. So had I not done the other TEDx talk, I probably would have panicked. But I knew that I needed a solid two weeks to write it, like to write it and, com- and commit it to memory. Got it. That I knew. So I left the hospital on March 2nd, and I probably started writing on the 9th of March. I gave myself the first week to kind of feel sorry for myself, and I was too weak to do much of anything. And then I was like, I'm going to make this happen. And so they had me. I mean, I was expected to hit all the other marks with my coach because they had a coach assigned to each one of us for the TEDx Greenville. Uh, yeah, it takes about two weeks to commit something like that to memory. And what's even harder is when I did TEDx Toronto, I didn't have any time restrictions. TEDx Greenville, I had 12 minutes. And 12 minutes sounds like a lot of time. It's not. To try to pack enough salient points about your topic into 12 minutes is actually really challenging. So we had to keep cutting stuff. And inevitably, when you get up in front of a live audience, your cadence generally slows down. Once you kind of find your stride, you relax and you might draw things out a little longer. So 
midway through my talk, I realized I didn't have enough time to get through my whole talk. And mm. so when I got off the stage, uh, honest to God, I said to my coach, I was like, that's the worst talk I've ever done. It's the worst talk I've ever done. That was terrible. And she looked at me and she said, don't ever say that again. She's like, you were great. You really did a great job. And she said, no one's going to know that you cut out three minutes of your talk. And I was like, I know, but I know. And she said, no one's going to (laughs) know. So what I had to do was when I was watching this clock tick down, I looked at it and I was like, I have less than a minute. And I was only the third speaker. And there were like, I don't know, eight other people who still had to go. And they were very specific. Like, if you take too much time, then you're going to throw everyone else's time off. And everyone wants to genuinely like bring it and be done. And so uh, I sped through my talk three minutes forward. I don't know how I like I think about it now. I'm like, I don't know how I did that. But uh, I somehow managed to have a cohesive talk, even though I was cutting out what I felt like were really important points to make about fasting. But yeah, that's the that's the backstory about that talk, which is crazy. Yeah. Or energetically rich. I was told not to say the word crazy. Yeah. Energetically rich. I love that. Let me ask you, Cynthia, do you think you would have given as powerful as a uh, powerful of a talk if you didn't have that experience in the hospital or did that experience those 13 days in the hospital, that near death experience really inspire you to just put it all out there and give it everything you got? Yeah, Um, that's a great question. I, I think on so many levels, I was. I was adamant that I wanted to show my boys that mindset is everything. So from my perspective, I just wanted to get through the talk. Like I was like, I just want to get up there and give my talk and I'm going to be so proud of myself. And, you know, my youngest is here and some of my family members are here. And then I'm going to feel this tremendous sense of accomplishment because look at what the heck has happened in the last month of my life, like the last six weeks. Like I never imagined I would ever be that sick. I never imagined how humbling that process would be. I mean, the joke was I had a drain in my abdomen that was only pulled three days before. So part of the joke was if I have to go to Greenville with a drain, how am I going to hide it? Because it hung between your legs because it was, uh, you know, your your appendix is near lower, uh, right lower quadrant of your abdomen. And I was like, the dress I wore was fitted. There's no way I could have hidden it in the dress. And I'm like, the joke was, am I going to strap it to my leg? Like that was, we were trying to make a joke out of it. Uh, But I I really, I retrospectively now I can say that I don't know how I did that. Like I, when I look at it now, I'm like, it's painful for me to watch it on so many levels. Cause I I think most people don't enjoy, (laughs) don't enjoy watching themselves, you know, do like a, a public speech, but on so many levels, it's like, it had not. I had not registered in my brain what my body had been through. Like it had not yet. Cause April was a whole other story Then I had my surgery and then it hit me hard. And April was a very hard month. And then May is when the talk came out. And um, the interesting thing is a lot of what potentially makes a talk go viral is the topic, but it's also the way it's worded or, and it was like, I didn't even have a very creative title for that talk. Uh, but a friend of mine called me, it was like middle of the afternoon, I had my kids, we were at like a swim team practice or swim team fitting uh, for their suits. And a friend was like, oh yeah, your second talk is out. And I was like, oh, it's cool. And she was like, I think this is going to be different. I was like, why do you say that? And at that point, it was just that day it had been released and there were already like 10,000 
downloads. And by the end of that day, it was 89,000 downloads. And so or views. Uh, and so clearly it was going to be different, but I had no idea. Like my team wasn't ready for that to happen. I wasn't ready for that to happen. I mean, it crushed us that summer um, in terms of, you know, we were just not prepared for what was coming out of that. And and I'm always great, very grateful. Uh, but it also makes me realize how much I've grown since then, because now it's like I'm in a completely different place on every level. But I remember saying to my kids, oh, yeah, we're going to have this summer. It's going to be more quiet. We're just going to go to the pool. It's going to be no big deal. And then it was like, I just, it's like a a bunch of bricks just got dumped. It was like just trying to absorb all of this, um, all these amazing things that happened, but a lot of attention that we, we had not anticipated given the first talk was kind of like, yeah, it's good. And, you know, it's decent. Um, But I guess a lot of people were looking for fasting, looking for information on fasting. That's what drove the the views. And yeah, and then it was from there, it was just very, I mean, there's no other way to say it, just very humbling, very, very humbling. Um, and for which I'm very grateful, very, very grateful. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. It's, uh, as somebody who, you know, as somebody who has put out and it's completely different, like as someone who I, and I've shared this with you before, like giving a TEDx talk is my my big vision for 2021 um i'm sure there's going to be different challenges because of the climate but like i'm pretty committed to that uh but i've seen kind of after having a few videos probably like eight to ten videos on tiktok hit like three million plus views and it's just kind of like so many unexpected things come from that like one person who might be high profile saw it, which leads to another opportunity, you know, like you never know Mm -hmm. who your message is going to resonate with. And that's why I think it's so important that, you know, even if you are introverted, like you said that you are, Mm -hmm. is like you continue to speak your truth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people are like, oh my gosh, like, how do you create a viral video? you don't try to create, like you weren't trying to create a viral talk. Obviously you wanted it to impact as many people as possible, but you show up every single day teaching and sharing Mm -hmm. all of these ideas and concepts on a daily basis. And it's just a product of the consistent committed work. And I just think it's really important to mention that because people think, oh, maybe Jeremy got lucky with this video. Cynthia got lucky with her talk. Like, no, like preparation, consistency, commitment, like the amount of, the amount of commitment you have towards that vision after what you endured, Mm -hmm. you know, just a few, a couple weeks prior is unbelievable. Um, And I think, yeah. Sorry. No, no, I don't mean to interrupt you. I think, one of the things that I'm oftentimes kind of humored by, and, and I'm sure you get this as well, the people who want to give a TED Talk or have given a TED Talk will say to me, well, what did you do? Did you pay someone to make it go viral? And I was like, no. Well, what did you do? And I said, I did nothing other than execute. Like I literally mm. just got up there and, and spoke my truth. And I, I'm a firm believer in that the universe takes and the universe gives. And so... I was given an opportunity to step up and I stepped up 
And I don't believe in, uh, you know, making excuses for things we do or don't do. But for me, I, I really felt like the universe, God, the Holy Spirit, whoever you believe in, whatever you believe in, I was given that opportunity and I chose to step up. Um, and I think largely because I was scared, pardon me, shitless at how things could have been very different. And in fact, um, and I just share this, it's interesting, I'm sharing more with you during this conversation that I probably have publicly ever. Uh, my surgeon and I, after my appendix was removed, you know, obviously you go in for these post-op visits and I sat in her office and I cried. And I said, I know that there's a reason why you were on call that night because I know you saved my life. And she said, Cynthia, if you had been a different Obviously, I'm in my later 40s. Um, you know, if you had been a different 47-year-old, you might have died. And I said, yep. And I know that. So I'm, I look at it and I'm just like, well, heck, this is why I take care of myself because I might not have had the same outcome. And, you know, I want to be around for a long time. And I want to be an example to people that are middle-aged, whether they're male or female, that, you know, we can embrace limiting beliefs or we can choose not to. And And I'm someone that uh, doesn't. I firmly believe irrespective of your age or your gender, there's a lot of things you can do. So. Yeah. And that's, that's such a powerful lesson. And I hope everyone listening right now is really letting this one sink in and mm -hmm. also asking yourself, like, what do I need to lean into? What fear do I need to confront what, what discomfort do I need to allow to enter my life? Um, because as you would, uh, as you would agree, I would assume, I don't like making assumptions, Cynthia, but like a lot of your success in your career and in your family life as well is due to challenging yourself and leaving your comfort zone. And I want you to take us back to this journey, you know, uh, April 1st, 2016. Tell us about that day and what led up to it. What were you doing up until then? And then, you know, how has that almost five years since been? What have been some of the biggest takeaways for you? Yeah. So for anyone who is not aware, April 1st, 2016, I left clinical medicine. Uh, I had been feeling very disillusioned with clinical medicine for a long time. And certainly having children. I had a child with life-threatening food allergies. And, you know, that really sent me down a rabbit hole, you know, going down a rabbit hole of like, why did this happen? How did I contribute? What could we do differently? You know, I, I had started a doctoral program and I hated that. I had started, I done a wellness coaching program. I didn't love that. What lit me up was food and nutrition and the influence of food and nutrition on our well-being and our health. And of course, there isn't really a lot of that focus in clinical medicine. Uh, most registered dietitians just spew off the food guide pyramid and my plate and lots of heart healthy grains and a whole bunch of other BS that I don't believe in. And, you know, when I did this functional nutrition program, that changed my life. You know, being a mom, biggest change. Number two, doing this functional nutrition program. I had worked in cardiology as an NP for 16 years. I love the heart. I love everything about the heart. I grew very weary of writing prescriptions. I grew very tired of seeing patients that were even younger than me that were getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And all I was doing is writing more and more prescriptions. And I'm like, if I could get you to change your diet, get more sleep, manage your stress, 
you would have a completely different outcome. And so about two months before I left clinical medicine, so February of 2016, I woke up one morning and I was getting increasingly disillusioned. I I kept saying, I I don't think going into a different specialty in medicine is going to make it better. Like I'd really thought about that. Do I need to go back to the ER? Should I be doing urgent care? Why don't really, you know, it's like they come in, they go out. And uh, my husband's an engineer and God bless him. He's, uh, you know, like there's always one person in the relationship. One's the brake and one's the accelerator. I'm the accelerator. He's the brakes. So you can imagine when I was making a good salary as an NP and saying to him, well, I'm going to like stop working as an NP and I'm going to become an entrepreneur and I don't know how I'm going to make any money, but I need you to support me. And he was kind of like, what, 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 what? And we had literally just moved into a bigger house, bigger mortgage, uh, I, I think he probably narrowly lost his mind. And I just said, I know I'm going to be successful. I just need you to trust me. And so I spent the rest of 2016 kind of navigating, going from being a clinician to being an entrepreneur, which I had no business training. Like you had an undergraduate degree in business. I did not. And I didn't even know what my niche was. I mean, I literally stopped working and then like took this massive leap of faith. But by the end of the year, I had a business coach and I was heading in the right direction Um, and then pretty quickly I started getting, I started recognizing patterns. Like that's something clinically, like when you're in medicine, you see patterns and you're like, okay, pattern recognition. Okay. This is something I need to kind of run with. And I was finding middle-aged women, middle-aged women were coming with the same four or five symptoms and complaints. And so I start. I built a group program. Then I started doing one-on-ones. Then that was kind of the start. And then I, you know, one business coach I had kind of opened up doors to, uh, you know, really expanding my business. And so, uh, you know, April 2016, and then, you know, I was profitable fairly quickly. Uh, it, you know, one thing a lot of entrepreneurs do is they spend years and years and years trying to make up the income that they um, that they had before. And so, you know, I have to be careful how much I share, but it went from a point where, you know, working part-time as a nurse practitioner, you know, I made X number of dollars and then I was able to recoup that uh, very quickly. And then um, that continued to grow and that opened up more doors and more opportunities. And, uh, you know, 2019, as I tell everyone was the game changer, you know, that was the total game changer. Then it was, okay, we're not living small. We're going to live big. And I joined a big mastermind and, um, that opened up a lot of opportunities and pushed me in, in directions I never thought were possible. Um, and, you know, we started a podcast and it's like all these like good things, but it's all these seeds for future growth and future opportunities that you look back and you're like, oh, now I get it. Oh, okay. Now I get it. I so, love that. What mastermind are you in, by the way? JJ Virgins. So it's the, yeah. And it's, it's, I've really, that was a good decision. So, you know, almost every year I'd heard about this Mindshare community and gosh, it was a huge investment. So just to go to the Mindshare event, it was out in San Diego. And I, so I told my husband, okay, uh, I really want to go to this. I feel like now is the right time. And so I hadn't even intended to join a mastermind, but I went to this event, knew no one, you know, here I am in the introvert. So this is like super scary. My whole family flew out and during the day, I went to the to the Mindshare event and there was one luncheon. There was a physician friend. He's like, you really should go and check it out. And I was like, well, I'm just not like the financial place. All these other people are. And he's like, no, 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 apply anyway. And I'm so glad I did because 
I finally started to like put the little pieces, the puzzle back in that made me realize, okay, these are the things in my business I don't have that I need to have. Like the infrastructure really needed to be changed. And so the infrastructure started to change. And then it was like, I could level up. It was like, okay, um, yeah, that was 2019, got a PR firm, wanted to do more TV work, which was fun. Um, but I think the difference for me was the proximity to people who were farther along in their business. They could really serve as examples of like, this is the roadmap to get you from point A to point B. And I was smart enough to realize like a viral TED talk can be monetized. You know, let's think about what direction, what platform we want to, we want to go in and, you know, how do we want to take it there? So that really opened up more, you know, opportunities. And then it's kind of like that nice domino effect. It was like, okay, I was co-hosting a podcast and then my co-host who I still have a wonderful relationship with, she was feeling like it wasn't in alignment with what she wanted to do. And so that was 2020. And uh, I was terrified. I was like, oh, I don't know if I could do this by myself. It was like the most serendipitous thing that could have ever happened because then I wasn't afraid to ask anybody to be on my podcast that I like looked up to, admired, respected. And it was like, that was like just an incredible year of podcasting and the shares, you know, the same. And so um, all these like growthful things, you know, being an introvert, I can have a conversation one-on-one, like I can do that. Um, but go out and like sell myself in a crowd when I have to meet a lot of people, I'm like, it's not really my thing, but I think podcasting is an amazing opportunity to connect with people it truly is. So yeah. that's a long-winded explanation for what happened on April 1st, 2016, but that's, that's the journey. Yeah. A lot of different tangents and directions. I want to take this first question. So you spent a lot of time in more of the Western medicine model, right? Treating symptoms. You said it yourself. There's times where you like felt very hesitant and almost guilty handing over these prescriptions. So I'm curious to know, first of all, like what were some of the things that you were often prescribing? Um, I know you were dealing in cardiology and then maybe if you want to take a moment to talk about some of the common meditation uh, medications people are taking now, whether that be statins for mm-hmm. high cholesterol or SSRIs, whatever direction you want to go with that. Um, and just talk about maybe some of the potential pitfalls mm-hmm. treating symptoms rather than the root cause. Yeah. So, the, I mean, that's the whole basis of, of traditional allopathic medicine. And, and let me be very clear you know, we kind of started the conversation talking about my my healthcare journey. Obviously, that's a, a great example of you have to treat the symptoms because someone's going to die. But chronic disease management is really what I was finding terribly unfulfilling. A lot of the medications uh, I prescribed were, you know, evidence-based medicine, which is which basically means you go back to research and you look at the research and you can justify your decision making, and then you're in the you're in you're in a good place. And so with, you know, vascular patients, people with heart blockages, either epicardial within the heart or vascular, you know, in their other blood vessels, it's antiplatelet agents. So aspirin, Plavix, et cetera. It is statin agents, cholesterol lowering medicines. It's blood pressure management. It is diabetes management. Uh, A lot of it's obesity management, but it's all interrelated. And so a lot of what I did was prescribe exactly the medications that I'm talking about and it's not to suggest that there aren't people that that truly, irrespective of how they live their lives and how they eat, they're going to develop some bad things. I mean, there are going to be bad things that happen. Uh, that's unfortunate. That's life. I'm a good example of that. But when we forget to talk to patients about the quality of the foods they eat, 
when we when we tell patients that saturated fat is bad and that they should drink, you know, have all these plant-based garbage seed oils and that sugar is not important, meaning that's not the the major reason why patients are so badly inflamed and and diabetically and metabolically unstable, uh, we're doing them a tremendous disservice. So, you know, I, I got to a point where there wasn't enough time that I was allotted with patients to really talk to them about nutrition. Although they were my practice to be supportive of me was trying to create those opportunities. There were not a lot of people taking advantage of it because there was this plus or minus, they may or may not get, you know, insurance reimbursement and people didn't want to pay out of pocket. That's kind of what, that's kind of what we've done to patients. Um, I will never forget probably 15 years ago, I had this wonderful PhD from the NIH. So, uh, you know, incredibly bright woman. And every time she came to see me, I would say the same thing. We really need to put you on a statin. You know, this is your LDL level, your, which is considered to be the bad cholesterol. This is your HDL, your triglycerides are terrible and your overall cholesterol is terrible. And every time she would say the same thing, she said, I've done my research. These are medications that are toxic to the brain. And these are medications that, you know, I, I work in research. I can't afford to not have my cognition impaired in a way that I can't do my work. And she would, you know, over time we became friends. And so she would share research with me. And I started to kind of think to myself, she's this NIH PhD researcher telling me this. This is not someone who's doing a Google search and is like a soccer mom in the middle of America. And by no means am I denigrating soccer moms in middle America. I'm just saying like, this is someone who has scientific training who's saying this to me, uh, which really caused me tremendous pause and, I, and let me be clear, there's no ego here. I really believe that my patients were oftentimes my biggest teachers. You know, they would cause me to think differently, look at something, consider an alternative perspective. I was always that person. In fact, it made me upset when people wouldn't ask questions because I was like, in my mind, it was really, really important that we be always asking questions irrespective of where we are. I still do that. I ask questions every day. Uh, and so she she had a tremendous impact on me. I still remember her name and exactly who she was. And I sit in gratitude because she opened me up to the possibility that maybe there were other alternatives or other ways of thinking about things. So that was kind of one concern that I had. Or, you know, putting young men that were having palpitations or had heart disease on beta blockers, which is a class of medications that are very effective for high blood pressure. They're effective for decreasing myocardial uh, demands, so heart oxygen demands, but also have side effects like erectile dysfunction. What 35-year-old man wants to have erectile dysfunction? I mean, let's be honest. Sorry to interrupt today's show, but I just want to shout out our sponsors because these two companies are literally the way that I start and end my day. And first, Purity Coffee. This is the cleanest, most sustainable fair trade coffee on the market. And it also has the highest contents of antioxidants. 97% of coffee in the US has mold and mycotoxins. So we don't want that shit in our body. So the best way to really avoid it is by investing in a delicious brew. And you might be spending four or $5 a cup on your morning cup of coffee. This is a great way to not only improve 
your level of coffee, your quality, but also save some money too. So go to puritycoffee.com and type in Coach Jeremy at checkout. You'll get hooked up with 20% off. And yeah, enjoy that shit. And think of me every time you have your morning cup of joe. And then I got a shout out CBD, Santa Cruz Medicinals. They have absolutely hooked it up and have helped me with my deep sleep with their deep sleep turmeric capsules. I usually take these every other night and I've tried different CBDs in the past, but none of them really imp impacted me. And um, I really encourage you to give these both a try, both the Purity Coffee and the CBD. They have tinctures, they have capsules, they have a whole bunch of cool stuff. And again, the most sustainable, the highest quality, Coach Jeremy at checkout, 20% off, get hooked up and continue to elevate your health, your wellness in 2021. Now, let's get back to the show. Cynthia, just sorry to cut you off, but I'm pretty sure based on the studies I've done, not studies I've done, sorry, <laughs> the research I've done, the research I've done, uh, <laughs> the research I've done, that about 40% of men over 40 suffer with erectile dysfunction. And that's why I'm always saying like, if you wake up with morning wood and you're a dude, that's a sign that you have a healthy heart. Because if your blood is flowing to one area or it's not flowing to one area, chances are it's not flowing to other areas. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a great indicator of heart health for men. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just want to get that in there. Sorry. No, no, no. And I can actually tell you the very first day I was a nurse practitioner, like I was so proud. I had my white coat. I went to Grand Rounds and the very first Grand Rounds I listened to as a new nurse practitioner was a vascular surgeon saying erectile dysfunction is the first sign of vascular disease and or diabetes. And that stuck with me. So when like young men were comfortable enough to share that with me and they weren't on beta blockers, I was like, okay, that's a problem. So I agree with you. It can also be a sign of testosterone levels um, in, our, in our society that's increasingly metabolically unstable and obese, you know, men can actually aromatize testosterone to estrogen. So when we see man boobs and, you know, men that have a lot of obesity, you know, especially abdominal obesity, that can be a sign that they have, you know, lower levels of testosterone also with insulin resistance. But, you know, in terms of medications, I think statins were one large group. Um, a lot of the blood pressure medications, there were a lot of side effects, a lot of them sexual side effects. And, you know, I'm going to tell you that a lot of my peers were not sympathetic about the sexual side effects. They were like, well, I mean, you know, we, they need this for their heart. And I'm like, you want to talk about depressing someone who's not going to be compliant. If a dude suddenly can't have sex with his significant other wife or whatever, uh, that's a problem. That's a huge problem. So those are probably two kind of major areas. And I think, you know, the other thing that I found problematic is almost everyone who came into the hospital was prescribed proton pump inhibitors. So if anyone's not familiar with what these drugs are, they reduce stomach acid. And, and it's thought that when people are having problems with reflux, it's because they have too much stomach acid. Well, when you suppress stomach acid, that's like the first line of defense in the stomach. So the things that are killed off by hydrochloric acid, like parasites and bacteria, when you further suppress stomach acid, not only does it impact you know, your immune function, but it also impacts your ability to break down protein into, excuse me, amino acids. And so 
you know, almost everyone was put on protonics in the hospital and that was continued and potentiated for forever. And there are so many side effects of proton pump inhibitors. And we know there's actually a book called Stomach Acid is Good for You if you're inclined to read it talks about the fact that most of the time when people have reflux is because they don't have enough stomach acid. So our thought process about suppressing stomach acid is really incorrect. And so that and the overuse of antibiotics, I would say those four key areas to me are profoundly detrimental. So the gut microbiome is responsible for so many things. Trust me when I say this, I was on six weeks of IV antifungals and antibiotics, six weeks, not to mention the hit I took in the ER and pre-surgery and post-surgery. And so one round of antibiotics, you know, based on study research can impact your gut microbiome for 18 to 24 months, one round. So antibiotics should be used in certain instances. Obviously I needed it, but antibiotics are used over judiciously almost every day. There are so many things, you know, people don't want to be sick. They don't like feeling sick. I get it. No one likes having uh, a cold virus. I mean, obviously no one wants COVID, uh, but antibiotics don't help viruses. And we've become a nation. Let's take COVID out of it. Let's pretend there's no COVID right now. We become a nation of whiners. We don't want to be sick and we want to be given medications to shorten the duration of feeling sick. And so I have so many peers that, you know, whether it's an urgent care, ER medicine, primary care, they feel intense pressure to prescribe, over-prescribe antibiotics because their patients come in expecting them. They want that magic pill. They want right. that quick fix. Right. And that's what is frustrating sometimes is watching and listening to people say like, hey, what's the one food that's going to Excuse help me. me lose weight or the one exercise that's going to get me shredded and lose my beer belly? Like, no. More these, complicated than that. Yeah, these are, you know, 5, 10, 15 years of poor habits and decisions that have manifested into chronic disease, whether that's diabetes, obesity, whatever it may be. And I'm glad that you have that experience, you know, 20 plus years in that setting. And I'm sure that's provided you so much knowledge and so much uh perspective on how to like go about mm -hmm. your coaching now where you're yeah. able to spend more than eight to 10 minutes with a patient. And, yeah. um, uh, you mentioned, you mentioned a couple interesting things and I'm going to do my best to like, not forget these things that I really want to touch on because they're super important. And the things you're speaking about are extremely impactful. Um, so, Talking about uh, talking about uh, sex, which I which I heard you mention, and the importance of that for not only men but everyone, right? Like really being able to connect intimately with your partner, and however that looks like to you. I know you recently made an Instagram post that said, um, I believe something along the lines of your sex life can get better and better as you age. Mm -hmm. So. I love that. Uh, I love that you posted something about that. Um, and you're 48, right, Cynthia? 49. I've got a big birthday this year. Hey, you're turning 50 this year? I am in August. Yes. Hey, let's <laughs> go. Okay. Yes. That Africa trip makes sense now. Um, yeah, totally. Okay. So that's amazing. Um, so would 
be curious and would appreciate uh, if you're willing to kind of talk about that process, because you've been married 20 plus years, um, you're almost 50. And a lot of people equate that to like a non-existent sex life. Mm -hmm. So would love if you could bust a couple myths real quick. Yeah. I mean, I think it gets more, you know, when you're, when your children are young and they go to bed at seven o'clock, it, it gets a little easier. You know, now I'm at a, a point in my adult life where my kids are up later than I am. And so you have to get creative. And, and now we're, you know, you had COVID and, and the fact that everyone's together all the time, or at least all in the house at the same time, you have to get creative. So, you know, we've come to find out that like early morning when my kids for sure are totally asleep, that has become like, we will just kind of set aside time. And as unsexy as that sounds, you have to schedule time for intimacy. And intimacy can represent many different things. It doesn't necessarily have to mean penetrating sex. It could be like someone's giving you a massage or you're just cuddling with one another um, because it's very easy when you've been together for a long period of time to kind of forget about those things. You, you can exist as roommates if you're not careful. So mm. I think you have to schedule time together. Um, you know, obviously with COVID and social distancing, that kind of, you know, you can't just go away for a night all that easily because I have to have people come here and I'd have to quarantine my whole family just to have my mother here. And so that's a whole separate issue. The point of, of what I'm saying is um, sometimes when you're a little bit older, it might take a little bit, especially for women, it may take um, more time to get ready to be able to do things. And so, you know, there's all sorts of um, you know, toys. Actually, I just did a podcast with Susan Bratton, who if you haven't met Susan, she's, she would be an incredible person to bring on your podcast. She talks about sex in a way that is very, um, uh, I guess the easiest way to explain it, it's very educational and very respectful, not respectful, meaning like she doesn't use proper terminology, but she just gives it to you straight, but she does it in a way that is so kind of appreciative because I would think most Americans still tend to be a little bit puritanical. They get a little uncomfortable. Um, I got more women DMing me and men saying, oh my gosh, thank you so much. I watched this with my spouse or thank you so much for mentioning this. Um, and so I come, come from it from a clinical perspective. So I'm like, okay, education first. So first and foremost, you have to schedule time with your partner. Second of all, um, you know, intimacy encompasses so many things. So I think sometimes women, and I think it's more women having waxing uh, desire and not because they really don't want to. It's just, it's like part of the, all the things, you know, all the things I have to do. And in, in women's mind, it's like, I have to do a hundred things. And when I'm done with the hundred things then I'm ready to do this. And whereas the man is like, I may have a hundred things to do, but as soon as you're ready, I'm ready. Like I'm all in. And you're just right. recognizing there are gender differences. And then lastly, I would say one thing that's really important is that irrespective of how long you've been with someone, you should continue to date your spouse. So my husband will send me, he brings me flowers every Friday. And even, you know, when he was during in COVID quarantine, he ordered me flowers to be delivered because he could not go out and get them himself. So I get flowers every Friday. Um, you know, we schedule regular date nights, even if we are literally just going out to run with the dogs. I mean, we spend time together. We enjoy spending time together. Um, I think you really have to date your spouse. Like there are little things I do for my husband every day, little ways I can show him I love him. Uh, you know, we have these like little rituals that we do for one another that are kind of sweet. I mean, I'm sure my brother would probably cringe, but there's little things I do for my husband every day that show him 
that I love him and vice versa. And it doesn't have to be like, you have to, you know, buy someone like an expensive trip or an expensive piece of jewelry. It's like really the small things are the big things, like giving someone your attention, um, really genuinely listening and not just kind of go, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Cause there's a lot of that that goes on. Um, but almost every day I get a gratitude text from my husband in the morning and I can actually read you the one that he sent me this morning. Cause it's very sweet. Um, Aww. Wow. The sun is out. Birds are chirping. I'm drinking my tea and full of gratitude for this day and this life we have built. It's far from perfect, but the ups and downs are made better by having a loving supporter supportive partner to go through them with. This is because we've been having so many issues with our builder. <laughs> Last night we were both frustrated, but those kinds of things go a long way. Like I, I think for me, like the, the gift of COVID has been, I will not take you for granted. Like, I don't think it's ever intentionally done, but I think it's like little things every day that we can do with our partner that can pull you apart. So it's important that you're trying to go to bed at the same time. You know, it's very easy. Like we could both be working for forever, but it's important to like come together at the end of every day, make sure you have a good hug every day. I mean, coming together because it's very, very easy when you have kids and you're trying to run a household and do all the things. It is very easy to get disconnected. The easy part is when, you know, a relationship is relatively new and before you have kids, because you can just focus on each other. Whereas there are all these distractions, like bright, shiny objects all over the place. And it's like, if you want to really focus on your relationship and your marriage, you have to make the effort. Like that's, there's no, there's no like biohacking tricks to that. (laughs) Wow. Oh my goodness. So many knowledge nuggets (laughs) that you just dropped. Um, You mentioned creativity Uh, as your sons have gotten a little older and they're staying up later. You mentioned um, how getting it in, in whatever capacity that means in the morning, (laughs) whether that's a morning massage, a morning shower, a morning bath together. Those are my personal favorites. Um, Can you tell me about maybe a time that you two got creative recently? Oh, creative. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think it's lately it's been, you know, trying to kind of explore, um, using new devices or toys so that, you know, just to kind of keep things fresh. Um, You know, Susan kind of gave me some ideas when we recorded and she's hilarious. I'm like, I'm telling you, that was one of my, it's been my, one of my most popular, um, I almost said recipes, one of my most popular podcasts because people are like the destigmatization, like we can talk about sex toys and we can talk about lube. And so using different things to kind of spice things up and not feeling embarrassed about it. I think there's, Again, there is this thought process that, you know, sex is only one way. There's only one way to be intimate. Like I I did a tweet the other day and someone was damning me, I guess, for advice. And I was like, we realize intimacy is more than just penetrating sex, right? Like that's part of the conversation. Like we have to actually have that conversation that it's not just one way. So, you know, connecting with one another and, and, you know, even if you decide I'm going to put a timer on and we're going to kiss for two minutes. Yeah. You know, so just, I think finding variety in an otherwise situation where you're not able to have like the degree of privacy you might like to have um, because the rental house that we're in is much smaller than the house we were in before. So it's kind of like, we literally like our bedrooms are all so close to each other. We're like, yeah, we just got to just make it work. Like that's the way it is. So, yeah. I love that. I love all of that. Um, 
Yeah. And maybe that'll be the subject of your net, next uh, TEDx talk. How to, keep, how to keep sex spicy past <laughs> the age of 50. That would actually be, yo, like that might hit 10 million views. <laughs> you know, I, I actually said TEDx has made so much money off that second talk that I will never do another free talk unless I choose to do one. Um because it really demonstrated for me, I'm like, wow, like they are making a killing off of advertising from that talk. Mm, so that's where true. my mind goes now. I'm like, hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, leveraging that personal brand is key. And just tying up that whole uh, talk about intimacy and sex, I think what my point of view is as a man, and after having had this conversation with, my friends and other men, you know, I feel like one of the things that I've definitely, uh, definitely struggled with is like being type A when it comes to sex, like Mm -hmm. obsessing about performance. Oh shit. Like I didn't do well that time. And then like feeling guilt, like feeling shame. And, um, and I think, yeah. And I think a lot of that can be avoided by like you said, just like building that connection. And that so it's not so all important. dependent on like this big moment, right? It's right. just like, it's just a natural progression to where things were going. Yep. And um, I you think- gotta laugh. The other thing you have to laugh about when things don't work right. Yeah. I mean, you, you have to, because I mean, what what's the alternative? You're going to beat yourself up. And I, I completely understand. It's like you get- fixated on an outcome. It's like, if the outcome doesn't happen, then it's a failure. No, 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 no. All of it's valuable. It's like, okay, maybe next time we need to try it this way. Okay. Try yeah. This way. And you have to be able to laugh with your partner. Like I, I can't imagine being with a partner where you felt like you couldn't like do something goofy or make a funny noise or do something silly. I mean, that playfulness is something that you never want to lose. I mean, that's really, really important. Like that Playfulness, like my husband and I laugh at each other all the time, not in a negative way, but like we'll tease each other. And that's just part of our dynamic. Like, you know, he'll say to me, there was a a photo of, so I have two doodles. And so uh, one's a rescue and he's kind of goofy. And his name is Baxter. He was named before we got him, but we call him George. Really, if you've ever watched Seinfeld. Of course, that's my all-time favorite. Very much like a, a character on Seinfeld. And then my regal, beautiful from the breeder doodle who I adore. His name is Cooper. And Cooper is always trying to wedge himself in between my husband and I. And so we laugh about this behavior all the time because it's just so funny. But if you can't be playful with one another, that's that's unfortunate. Like I, I think I certainly have been around long enough to see like the first wave of divorce. Like one of my closest, dearest friends from college is going through a divorce right now. She's in a good place because I think she had been done with that marriage for a few years. And, you know, seeing, you know, the last time I was around them, how different the dynamic had shifted. And so when that playfulness kind of goes south, if you can't work together on your relationship, because obviously you want to try to keep a marriage straight on the straight and narrow if you can. But, you know, looking at, you know, they decided that things are not working for them and that's okay too. You know, it's really finding what works best for both individuals long-term. Yeah, I think that's huge when you talk about incorporating more play. And I feel like we all could use with a little more laughter in our lives. Like laughter is the universal sign of joy, of of presence, right? Like 
you might not be able to communicate with someone speaking the same language, but when you see someone laughing, it's like, all right, like, I don't need to worry about that person. They're good. They're taken care of. They're enjoying the moment. They're enjoying whatever uh, life is handing to them. And I think that's a really valuable lesson as well. Now you have built this business. You've built this brand. You continue to grow, um, build your team this past four or five years, all while being a present mom, being a present wife and prioritizing your own peace and your own health. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of women who might be listening right now who think that they have to sacrifice one for the other. So how have you been able to balance all of those areas of your life? Well, it it probably depends on the day. Some days I probably feel like I'm doing a good job and some days I'm like, "Mm, I'm not so sure. I think you have to have a partner who is supportive of your needs. Like my husband got up this morning and was like, I'm going to the gym. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm taking the dogs out. I'm feeding the dogs. I'm going to go to solid core. The kids aren't awake yet. That's the beautiful thing about having teenagers. They sleep in almost every day. So we can both get a workout in sometimes together, sometimes not. Um, but I think you have to have the cooperation of your loved ones. I mean, there's without question, like my kids are old enough now that they, they help clean, they help walk dogs, they know what the expectations are. So I don't have to do it all. Um, obviously, we're in a position where sometimes we have people do food prep for us. Sometimes, well, every other week, someone cleans my my house. So that helps too. Uh, but we all band together as a family. And I tell my kids, listen, uh, you know, if I'm doing your laundry, then you can come get it and put it away. Like that's, you know, when you were five years old and you couldn't, I did it. And then, you know, it was like, I got to a point I couldn't do it anymore. So, you know, there's a lot of role modeling that goes on. My kids see that both my husband and I are committed to being physically active. And generally, I'll go to the gym with him or we'll go to solid core together or we'll walk outside together. So there's a lot of trying to intermix things. Now, now that I have teenagers, I'm probably the least cool person to them in the world, um, unless they're hungry or they need something. So, you know, your relationship with your children changes throughout their lifetimes. And so now I'm, I'm a sounding board. I'm there to kind of oversee things. Um, I'm not yet their buddy, you know, that will come later, but I think there has to be a commitment to shared values within your family to, uh, you know, make all those things happen. But I'll be the first person to say, I mean, I, I I kind of, when I became an entrepreneur, uh, I used to have a lot more free time when I worked as an NP and now I don't have as much free time. So my husband kind of stepped in, he, he actually really likes to cook. And so he does the bulk of the cooking which wow. uh, really works well. And he's a great cook and I do some cooking, but not as much. Um, and so we look at it as, you know, it's a tag team. We got to all work together to make things happen. Now I jokingly told my husband, when I get to another level, uh, we're going to pay someone to come in and, you know, be in the house to clean every week. And we're going to have someone do food prep for us because that is like with teenage boys whose appetites are just insane on a good day. Uh, I I'm kind of getting to the point where I'm like, Sometimes you can make five pounds of meat and it lasts two days. I mean, they just eat so much food. So um, I would be lying if I said I did everything myself. Um, It's all about balance. And, you know, I hire people out to do things that I don't do as well. I think that's the reality. Like I'm right now in my business, I'm doing a coaching program that's aligned with the book I'm writing. And I have a really great team. I've got someone who puts the audio together and puts the slides together with that. I've got someone else who creates the slides. And so I just write the content, I record the content and they make it look beautiful. And so I think, you know, one of the things that's really important when you're trying to find balance, which I believe is truly elusive in anyone's life, 
is acknowledging the things you don't do well, pay someone else to do. And then you have to have cooperation. You have to, um, as a family, you have to decide like, how is everyone to chip in? Like my kids will complain, you know, when it's 10 o'clock at night and they have to walk a dog. And I'm like, listen, your dad and I have been doing this for the last like 10 years. Now you're old enough that you can walk a dog and make sure it's peed and pooped and put them in their crates. And that's just what we do. So yeah, yeah. that's our balance. I think that's huge. And that's definitely important too, as an entrepreneur is like understanding your strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Like, what do I need to ask for support with, yep. you know, and whether you're a man or woman, whether you have kids yet or not, I think it's a really valuable lesson to really take an audit of your strengths, weaknesses, those areas that you can further optimize, be more effective. And when you do that, you're empowering other people. Like, it's not like, Oh, I'm giving my kid another chore. It's like, I'm empowering you. I right. feel like you can handle this responsibility. Yeah. And like they, like you said, you know, they're watching you and your husband just embody that mm-hmm. commitment and consistency. And Cynthia, I can definitely tell you, like looking back at my childhood, um, there's so many things I look back at, like with my mom specifically, and I'm just so grateful. Like, for the lesson she taught me, like every single day, I knew exactly where she would be picking me up from school. And I knew there would always be food on the table and just that unconditional love and support yeah. that I always felt from her, you know, even when I didn't necessarily have it for myself, you know, is something that is invaluable. And whether it's recognized now or not, it is, is not important. You know, I think they, uh, appreciate you so much for the way that you show up and the things that you provide. Um, we didn't really talk about food yet. And I know uh, time is running a little short. So let's try and do like maybe a little rapid fire for okay. food. Um, okay. So you worked in cardiology for a while. So what are three to five foods that are going to help promote a healthy heart? Mm, healthy heart. So I always think, you know, you hear the saying, you know, eat the rainbow, but really there are specific phytonutrients in brightly pigmented fruits and vegetables. So, you know, you talk about peppers and you talk about, you know, things like lycopene that you find in tomatoes and you think about eggplant and, um, you know, you think about, you know, berries, you know, I know you're a fan of blueberries, but like blueberries and raspberries. So there's specific chemicals in those that can be hugely beneficial. I think about fatty fish without question, you know, tuna, salmon, mackerel, sardines. Um, I can make a mean sardine pate. So anyone hears that and they're like, oh, sardines. I'm like, listen, if you put enough butter and sardines together and make a pate, it's amazing. Mm. And then um, I start to think about, you know, lower carbohydrate nuts. So like macadamia nuts, I'm thinking about those healthy fats that can be beneficial. I think about avocado and extra virgin olive oil and and sourcing it from a good place. That's definitely beneficial. The unfortunate thing is there's a lot of seed oils that are rampant in processed foods, or even when we go out to restaurants. So making sure that, you know, the oils that are being used in your food and restaurants is also really critical. I think about, um, you know, good quality meat. So nutrient dense, you know, kinds of proteins, uh, you know, I already mentioned, you know, fatty fish, but I also think about red meat is not something to be avoided. You know, even if you have steak a few times a month, a um, lot of nutrient density, iron, et cetera, 
Iron um, helps us carry uh, oxygen on our cells. So certainly that's another consideration. And then, you know, you've already mentioned one of these things. It's one of my, it's my only vice in life, either thinking about a really good quality red wine or because uh, there's a property called Reservatol or thinking about high quality dark chocolate. Uh, the one that I'm a huge fan of is Who. So it's H-U. Uh, it's paleo. There's no dairy in it. Uh, they're based out of New York City. It's a small kind of family business. They make really high quality dark chocolate. I like mine with a little bit of sea salt. Uh, and I would say lastly, the other thing that I would tie into that is in terms of heart health, which is completely contrary to what we are taught, um, you know, Himalayan sea salt, sea salt has a lot of micronutrients and minerals that we wouldn't otherwise get. So making sure that you're adding a little bit of salt, even to your water every day, uh, we lose electrolytes when we sweat when we perspire through urination, defecation and breathing. So really, really important that we're getting some high quality salt. I'm not talking about iodized salt. I'm not talking about the salt you get in processed foods. I'm talking about naturally naturally occurring salt. Um, and my favorite brand, you know, within the United States is Redmond's. They make a really nice quality product. Yeah, I love that. Um, definitely aligned with all those and I'm happy to see that I'm like eating all those consistently. So yay yep. for me. Um, <laughs> now you have two teenage boys. Uh, and I know when I was a teenage boy, my diet consisted of bagel bites, smart ones, frozen meals. Um, oh my gosh, gushers, fruit roll-ups, Funyuns, like literally. Mm -hmm. And this is what I was eating, like microwave food. And, and like my mom honestly didn't know better because right. she was fed information, you know, from the, the FDA or the American yeah. Heart Association who yeah. puts all of these garbage standards out there. So she was using margarine and not butter. So what are a few things, maybe three to five things that are extremely critical, would you say, for a developing child, you know, yeah. um, for their brain, for their yeah. body to really become the healthiest version of themselves? No, that's a great question. And, and to know that, you know, know better, do better. I think, you know, you were definitely born in the age of the bastardization of fat. So I grew up, um, I'm a little bit older than you and my mom's Italian. So I was eating organ meat and lots of healthy fats and it makes me cringe now because now those things are all very much in vogue. But when you're talking about developing brains, you really need, uh, you know, a good omega-3, omega-6 ratio. So uh, kids, a lot of times don't want to eat, they really don't want to eat fish, but trying to get high quality uh, omega-3s into the diet. Now they just shut the door. They're tired of hearing me talk about food. Um, I would say, you know, trying, you know, at an early age to get your kids to have a piece of salmon steak or um, get them to have tuna steak or even, um, you know, making tuna fish. I mean, these are things that I, I have to remind people are really critical. The imbalance between omega-3s and omega-6s is hugely problematic. Um, Omega-3s are designed to be anti-inflammatory and omega-6s are inflammatory. And so what you really want to find is balance. And unfortunately here in the United States, it's like a 20 to one omega six to omega threes. And so you can imagine why there are a lot of these chronic inflammatory disease states. But getting back to your original question, um, I would say making sure they're getting high quality fat. So avocado, um, which tends to be one of those more easily, a little bit of sea salt on some avocado and most kids will eat that. Or if you make guac at home, um, that's really easy to do. If they're not nut sensitive or not allergic 
you know, walnuts that look kind of like a brain. Um, macadamia nuts are a favorite. I'm not a huge fan of almonds. Um, you know, if you don't have issues with oxalates, you know, nuts are a great way to uh, get some of those healthy fats in. Extra virgin olive oil, olives, uh, coconut butter, coconut milk. I mean, I'm a fan of people just trying to, you know, examine different options. Grass-fed butter, ghee are all really nice healthy fats. I think number two is getting adequate protein intake. And so, you know, kids are growing. So this is actually, they're building muscle, they're building bones, they're building, you know, all these things about their bodies. And so making sure they're getting animal protein, which is superior to plant-based protein. Uh, I will go down to the, till my death saying that. Uh, so making sure they're getting, you know, um, red meats, you know, bison, beef, pork, uh, you know, chicken, turkey, uh, there's so many options. Yeah. I already mentioned some fish options. Shellfish is also in there. Getting creative. You don't have to have, uh, you know, exotic meats. I know wild boar, I'm starting to see more of that, antelope and elk, but that may not be everyone's cup of tea. And then, you know, lastly, I would say, you know, making sure they're getting a variety of fruits and vegetables and more vegetables than fruits. Unfortunately, we're a culture that's very sensitized to sugar and so when I talk to families and I'm talking to individuals, I'm like, you know, three vegetables to one piece of fruit. Like really it's the opposite. Most Americans are doing lots of tropical fruits, you know, mango, uh, they're doing bananas, they're doing papaya. And I'm like, time out, you know, it should be reversed. Like you should be having like asparagus, broccoli, Brussels sprouts. I'm just giving three examples to like a, a cup of berries. I mean, that's really the ratio you should be working with. And unfortunately, we're a very carbohydrate-focused culture. So what people do, instead of focusing on the high-quality fats and high-quality protein and you know the, the vegetable-to-fruit ratio, what they're doing is they're very rice-focused, pasta-focused, bread-focused. And you know, in, in most instances, if you have a healthy, metabolically healthy child, they can get away with eating those things on occasion. But that should not be the mainstay of their diets. Really shouldn't be. If you look at what is fed to cattle to fatten them up prior to slaughter, it's exactly those kinds of foods. And so I just interject that to kind of reemphasize that, you know, we want to be mindful of our healthy fats, our protein, and then that veggie to fruit ratio is really helpful. Obviously, if you don't have a weight problem, then you can get away with a little bit more carbohydrates. But if you do have a weight problem, you should be limiting or eliminating a lot of the starchy stuff out of your diet. Mm. Wow. So much juicy content there. Thank you so much. And to wrap up, you know, we didn't, it's funny, it's ironic because you're most known for your TEDx talk on intermittent fasting and we haven't touched on it yet. Um, and I wanted to definitely dive into sleep with you because I know that's something that a lot of your clients come to you struggling with. Uh, I've personally been tracking my sleep with the aura ring the last couple months. And something that keeps coming up, Cynthia, is I'm not doing well with my REM sleep. Mm -hmm. Um, and I feel like I have pretty good sleep hygiene in terms of like avoiding my screens, blue light blocking glasses, like cold room, dark room. Like, do you have any other tips or tricks that might help me, uh, with my REM sleep? What are you doing with caffeine during the day? I really am conscious about, uh, not having it past like noon. Cause okay. I know the half-life is six hours and, um, I'm very aware of that. How about, um, and I, I, I'm probably telling you things you know, but 
getting out in sunshine in the morning. That's very, very important for helping to regulate sleep. Uh, I think about, you know, are you drinking alcohol in the evening or late afternoon? I probably know the answer to that as well. Um, but I start to really think about, you know, would you benefit from like an amino acid, like L-theanine, or would you benefit mm-hmm. from phosphylsterine, uh, you know, serifos that can be hugely helpful. Uh, you know, serifos can actually blunt some cortisol. So if you're feeling like wired before you go to bed, although I can't imagine you are, cause you seem like you'd get yourself into some Zen state before you went to sleep. But I start thinking about those kinds of things that can be helpful. Um, that's usually where I start because they're both very benign. There's no abuse potential. You're not going to get, you know, you're not going to be in a position where you're um, somehow causing some harm. But when people start struggling with sleep beyond the things that you touched on, the most benign things that I look at is, uh, you know, the food piece. Are you, are you consuming something that's stimulatory for your body? Are you fasting during the day and you're not getting your macros in? Are you waking up in the middle of the night? Are you cognizant of waking up or is it just based on data from the aura ring? Yeah, so so definitely a combination of the two. Like I don't wrap all of my, uh, I don't wrap everything into the data. Um, mm-hmm. I go based on like intuitively how I feel, mm-hmm. um, but also kind of look at the rate, r- ratings, like what's consistently showing up. And that's the one thing that I can't seem to consistently improve. Um, so I appreciate those tips. I'm definitely going to, I think, implement L-theanine. Um, now, you're doing so many amazing things. We've talked about them uh, and we've shared a lot of the obstacles that you've overcome. I'm wondering, what is something that you're currently struggling with or that you're currently working through that maybe you need support with or maybe that you're on your own journey with? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say uh, there's two things. I have tremendous mom guilt because I work a lot. Uh, So I'm trying to make sure that I stop to have dinner with everybody. Sometimes I close my feeding window before they have dinner, but I always make sure to sit down so that we're all connected at the dinner table. Um, I think to be honest with you, I'm just in a a state of growth business-wise. And so uh, at any one given point in time, I have to really compartmentalize down because if I think about all the things I need to do, Like, for example, I'm writing two modules right now, my coaching program, and my team literally is waiting for me to finish so that they can do slides and so someone else can prep the audio. And so there's always like this running list of stuff that's in my brain at any one point in time. I I think I do a pretty good job about compressing as much as I can and, you know, being really deliberate about when I stop working and connecting with my family and then the exercise piece, which I think is critical. Like for me, it's movement, which is if you've ever seen, if anyone's ever seen my Ted talks, when I'm nervous, I move. And for me, movement is part of how I kind of work through stress, you know, moving my body. Um, I feel like I'm doing a pretty darn good job, but I have friends that have gone down this path before me and they're like, Oh, just wait before the book, it's going to be 16, 18 hour days of work every single day for months. And I'm like, okay, I don't know if that's sustainable. (laughs) That's the first thing. Um, So I think it's probably that, you know, mom guilt, which I think most women have. um, And then also just feeling like if you think about all the things, it's way overwhelming. So I try not to focus on, I try to focus on one thing at a time. That's my endeavor. Like when I make a list of what I need to do for the day, that's usually the position I'm in. I'm like, okay, what do I need to worry about today? 
Because if I think about all the things, then I'm like, oh my God, I can't do this. So. Yo, I can't relate to the mom guilt thing, but, <laughs> but I can 100,000% relate to just always having so much going on. And I think we're both in great situations. We're both super grateful for the different opportunities that have presented themselves and that we've opened up for ourselves. Um, and with that comes additional responsibility, additional time allocation. So um, I can definitely, definitely relate to you on that. And um, I appreciate you sharing vulnerably. Uh, now, final question. Mm -hmm. Now, this is the Thrive University podcast, Cynthia. And really our mission is to empower, educate people with the tools that they never learned in school. Mm -hmm. And I usually ask people like, what is something that you wish you would have learned in school? But I'm going to actually switch it up and ask you, what is one thing that you wish or hope your kids to learn in school? It's a good question. You know, I have boys and I hope for them that they learn to think outside the box and to not be afraid to do or live differently than the way their peers do. Uh, you always talk about the path less traveled. And I truly believe I'm a good example of that. You know, I didn't make the easiest choices. Uh, I didn't start off as a pre-med major. I have two undergraduate degrees. And so I went back to school and went that other direction. And so I hope that my boys feel confident enough in themselves that they will follow their own path without necessarily doing everything that their peers are doing. Because I think that that on so many levels is really at our detriment. You know, I, I use the term sheep and that really triggers my husband. So I try to be cognizant of that. But when I think about most people are kind of going through the motions, they don't necessarily really want to go to college, but they go to college. They don't necessarily really want to, you know, maybe settle down way before they're ready, but they'll do it because that's what their peers are doing. They feel like this external pressure to do what other people are doing instead of listening to what resonates most with them. And, you know, if one of my kids came to me and said, listen, I don't want to go to college. I want to go to trade school or I want to go to culinary school. I'd be like, that's great. You know, yeah. I want them to be true to who they are as individuals. I didn't have that luxury. My parents were very, um, you know, I come from a family where people don't just go to undergrad, they go to grad school, they have advanced degree. I mean, it's like, you know, just keep, you know, when I graduated from undergrad, the next question was, where are you going to grad school? And so, those, those degrees of expectations are not necessarily a bad thing, but uh, I, I would hope that my boys feel comfortable and confident enough to, to do what, what resonates for them because ultimately uh, we're the only ones that are responsible for our happiness. And, and I hope that, you know, I've been an example of someone that, you know, followed kind of a traditional path in some ways and then other ways not. Yeah, I love that. Like that's such a great mindset to indoctrinate your children with like, you know, take risks, make mistakes. And it's gonna be interesting to see like the climate of college when your kids are at that age in five or six years, because my personal opinion is that like, not only is college less relevant in 2021, but it's just ridiculous how much it costs to learn about something that you're not necessarily interested in. And there's right. just, and I think it's, it's hard for an 18 year old to decide what they want to do. Like my first degree was a poli sci major and I was pre-law and I got into law school and decided not to go. And my parents were like, what are you, what are you doing? 
Yeah. Uh, and I jokingly told my kids and I was like, I mean, no disrespect when I say this for anyone that is a psychology major, but I said, we will have no psychology majors in this house because you're either going to go to college to learn something that's going a skill that's going to allow you to get a job or skills that you need in order to do a specific kind of job, whether it's medicine or wh- whatever. I'm just trying to give an example. It's like, I want you to have skill, like real skills that you can use throughout your lifetime. That's important. Um, like my husband's trained as an engineer, but ended up, you know, he's a finance God. I mean, he can do anything with numbers, but I agree with you that especially because there are so many mediocre options that are out there. I just think if you want to go to college, great. If you genuinely want to go to college, great. But if you're doing it as a way to kind of have four years to hang out and party, that's not the right decision. Maybe, you know, it's better to take a gap year. Like you see so many young adults outside the United States that do gap years. Yeah. I did a gap year. Actually, I went to, I lived in Israel for nine months. Oh, awesome. See, yeah, honestly, like I probably underestimate how much that impacted me, but I'm super yeah. grateful that my dad like really pushed me to do that. Um, well, I want to close off Cynthia by just acknowledging you for the bright light that you are in this universe and your courage to do things that aren't typically expected from society to take that path. That's less traveled to be, a disturber in the space. What's the word that you use? Disruptor. Disruptor. And I really think this episode and your story is going to really resonate with a lot of people listening, both men and women. So I'm just so grateful uh, to have you as a friend, to have you as a colleague, to have you as a fellow uh, health warrior in this world, really just doing our best to empower as many people as possible. So thank you. Thank you so much for being you and showing up in such a powerful way, committed and consistent. It's my pleasure. Much love, everybody. Peace. Oh my goodness, podcast fam. I don't know about you, but that conversation with Cynthia inspired me so much to hear about all of the obstacles and adversity that she's overcome and the courage that she displayed through all of these trials and tribulations really encourages me to keep on going, to keep on pushing, to keep on moving forward. And I hope that you got value from today's show. I hope you got entertainment, education, empowerment from today's conversation because Cynthia and I are no different than you. We are just heart-led leaders who are committed to our mission and we are passionate about helping people through health and wellness. And I encourage you to ask yourself, what are you passionate about? What lights you up inside? What are the things that make your soul sing? And do more of those things. And if you want additional inspiration, encouragement, support, shoot me a text. We are building an amazing community. Hit me up. Seriously, text me the word podcast at 786 321 0278. Again, 
hit me up, send me the word podcast at 786-321-0278. And you'll get inspiration there. You'll get access to exclusive content, to exclusive giveaways that I do. So shoot me a message there, fam. And as always, if you got any value from today's show, please, please, please share it with a friend. Subscribe to the show if you're not already doing so. And if you feel inspired, please leave a review. It honestly helps so much, more than you could even imagine, honestly, because it helps with the algorithm. I'm not exactly sure how that works, but apparently it helps and it helps us reach more people and and our message get across and touch more lives. So ultimately, you can do a good deed. You can make a difference in the world by simply taking, you know, 12 to 15 seconds and leaving a review for the show and make it a heartfelt review. You know, I don't want you to make anything up. I want you to speak from your heart and let us know feedback. You know, I'm always trying to improve. I'm always trying to get better and grow as a podcast host, as a listener, and ultimately as a chief energy officer, you know, making sure I'm creating the right space, the right energy and facilitating a meaningful conversation. So anyways, fam, I love you so much. Your support means the world and you already know what time it is. It's time to take action on your dreams and thrive.